Like Ryan said, we're in the Blues Clues set today, and apparently Nick got the memo. He's got the shirt and everything, so <laughs> I just say that because he dresses cooler than all of us combined. So Zechariah chapter 9, we're kind of turning a new corner here. This is the 9 through 14, the last part of this book, it's a, and it's very different. The writing is very different. If um, you've been watching this, we saw all these visions, and then we had the specific answer to a question, and now they're, they're kind of asking a different question, or really Zechariah's answering a different question that's not stated, and it's like, what, what's going to happen now? What can we expect now that the temple's been rebuilt? What, what's God going to do? And as I sat down to start studying this this week, the, the first commentator I was looking at, he, he said, and the writing in 9 through 14 is more enigmatic than the other writing, which means hard to understand or interpret. I was like, oh, great. <laughs> this is going to be fun because I don't know if you guys remember, but there were stork women in chapter 5 <laughs> flying away with a basket full of wickedness, and the wickedness was a woman. Like, this is crazy. I gave that to Scott on purpose, right? So I didn't want the hard stuff. But he said, this is going to be more mysterious. And then just so we're all like, we're all okay with this. What he meant by that is that the type of writing here is straight up prophecy. This, this is a, in the Bible, when you see this prophetic writing, what they are doing, the, the writers, almost every time, they're focusing on themes and they're focusing on developing those themes and they're not really concerned about the chronological timeline of it. So what you'll see is they'll jump to the future and they'll jump to the present, jump to the past, and they just kind of mix it all up. And so it can kind of get confusing if you're trying to put a timeline together, if you're trying to understand when is this going to happen and what's this going to look like and where's this going to go down, like you'll get very confused because that wasn't their purpose. They were trying to develop these themes. And so when you, when you push that aside and go, okay, I'm not going to try to figure this out. I'm just going to look for the themes that are being developed in this passage. Uh, themes like God, you know, conquering evil and good winning, like those kinds of themes, and then you don't worry about the timeline, then it, it becomes way easier to understand, and then you just focus on those themes, and, which is obviously what we're going to do. Like, we need to see what is Zechariah communicating and not get lost in the when is this going to happen and how is this going to happen. So I asked Jen to start reading in verse 9 because verse 9 is the central verse in this passage. It's really the central passage in all the book of Zechariah. And that's where it really begins. But we're going to look at the whole thing. I want you to look at verses 1 through 8 with me. So that's why we want you to hold this copy open in your lap, uh, on your device, whatever. I, I asked her not to read it because it's a little bit long. And also there's so many different cities there that are kind of hard to pronounce. And I was just trying to be nice to her. But I bet she was very prepared. I bet she had it. Just go ask her. She'll probably pronounce them perfectly. But we, we want to look at what God is saying here because it's these themes that are being developed. And what God is saying here at the beginning, he starts naming these towns, these cities, these regions, and he says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to exercise my judgment on them. And so as he goes through this, I think this became very interesting to me, and I want you to see it because I think it helps to see what he's putting up here on a map as we kind of develop this first big idea here. And so we've got a map for you to look at. I want you to see this. I'm going to try to, try to help you with my uh, laser pointer here. He starts this verse 1. He says, The oracle of the Lord of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. Now, real quick, that Hadrach is, no one knows where that town was. Um, archaeologists, they can't find any town by that name. And so scholars have figured out that this was most likely a code name for Persia. It, it's literally a word that means raw, uh, hard and soft. And so Persia was ruling over 
the Israelites at this time. He was ruling over, Persia was ruling over Jerusalem. And so if you're about to say that Persia is going to be destroyed and they're your rulers, you probably don't want to say Persia. So you say Hadrach. You make up a code word. It's kind of like when we say we got missionaries in, you know, parts of the world we can't talk about. We're like, they're in East Asia. No one will ever figure that out. So basically it's like Hadrach is representative of Persia. And he says that, that the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus. And you see Damascus. It's up in the top right uh, up here, northeast on this map. And then he talks about Hamath, which is a town that bordered it, he said. It's not on this map. And then if you go all the way to the left to the coastland, you see Sidon and Tyre. And I want you to see what he says about Tyre here in verse 3. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets, which is basically just saying Tyre's well defended. And because they're so well defended, it's hard to attack them. And they're very wealthy. Verse 4, but behold... The Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea. They kind of built this rampart out there where they, they had the sea to help protect them. The Lord's going to strike down her power on the sea and she shall be devoured by fire. So very specific how God's going to take care of Tyre. And then as the passage goes along, he goes all the way down here to Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gaza, and these cities and Philistia, or the Philistine cities, and you know those are the enemies of God's people. Like They were always kind of enemy number one, the Philistines. And what God is saying is, all these enemies that are around you, all these people groups that have afflicted you, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exercise judgment on them. I'm going to conquer them. And so the, the map, I, I, I think the map can kind of help you see that, but just so you don't think I'm just being a Bible map nerd right now, I want to show you something that I found that was really, really cool. About 200 plus years after this, there was this guy that came on the scene, not in the Bible, but came on the scene of history, and his name was Alexander. He was quite a big deal. They said he was way above average. And Alexander was conquering everything. He was conquering all kinds of things. He went on these conquests and would conquer all different parts of the world, conquered a huge part of the world. There's one specific campaign that he went on, and I want you to see this map because we've got the arrows of how he kind of did this. It says that he, he won this big victory in Ilus, which was a, one of the major towns in Persia at the time. And then from there, he went to Damascus. And then he went from Damascus through that whole region and conquered and conquered and conquered Sidon. And then he came to Tyre. Nebuchadnezzar, it took him 13 years to finally make headway into Tyre because it was so well defended. It took Alexander seven months. He built this causeway out to their city. And then he just put all of his men out there and they just overcame them. And when they came inside the city, they took the city, they took the gold, the silver, and then they burnt it all up, which is exactly what it said was going to happen. And then uh, Alexander went from there. He went down here. No mention of him attacking these cities, especially Megiddo, because Decha was there. If you've read those Jotham's books, you don't mess mess with that guy. It's all fiction, but I just felt like we should point it out. He didn't do that. He goes down and he conquers all these cities. Alexander, this is his path, these arrows. He conquered all of them. He actually, right here, this arrow, he actually went down into Egypt. And, and then he came back and went, went the rest of the way. So what does this have to do with this? God says, I'm going to destroy these cities. I'm going to exercise judgment on these enemies. I'm going to wipe them out. 
And a couple hundred years later, they get wiped out by this guy named Alexander. And it's this theme that I think we need to see. I think it's really important to see this. And here it is. God is sovereign over all the earth. God is sovereign over everything. He's in control of everything. His plan, his purposes, right on schedule. Not, not one beat has been missed. Everything, everything that happens, it's a part of his plan. He's, he's allowing it, he's ordaining it, he's orchestrating it, he's doing all that. God is in control of everything. So God says, all these cities that have afflicted my people, I'm going to wipe them out. And then he raises up Alexander, and Alexander goes down the exact same. This is a couple hundred years after this prophecy. Alexander follows the same path and wipes out the exact same cities. Why? Because God's in control. He's always in control. And that is a theme throughout Scripture. It's a truth. It's a it's a worldview-forming idea that we need to grab a hold of at any time. But this week, man, this is good medicine this week. When this stuff starts happening in Russia and the Ukraine, all this stuff, and, and, and we're like, what in the world is going on? You, you go back and you go, hey, God's in control. God's accomplishing his purposes. God's always in control. He's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. I didn't, oh, I didn't see that coming. He's, he's always in control. And one of our very own theologians here at our church, Kate Stevens, um, she works in our children's ministry and our youth ministry. She does a lot of things. She has a blog. Like, there's no end to Kate's talent. That's what they say on the streets. And you may have seen this because we promoted it on our social channels. We put it on our blog. She wrote this blog this week with three things that you can tell your kids about this Russia-Ukraine thing. And it was so timely and so fitting with this passage, I wanted to share a quote from it. She's talking about this idea that God is sovereign and teaching our kids this. Look look at this. Teach them that God is sovereign. He either ordains or allows, but he never misses. Kids will ultimately ask, why did God do this or that? Why? And she says, I still ask that, so I don't question why my daughters do. Teaching them that God is always in control, even when we don't feel like he is, is truly powerful worldview shaping. We tell our emotions to obey the Lord. We don't obey our emotions. That is good stuff to teach your kids, because we all got that figured out as adults. We don't worry about our emotions clouding the picture. That's good to teach your kids to remind yourself. What's going on in Russia and Ukraine? I don't, I don't understand that. I don't get that. But I go back to this truth that God's in control. God God is sovereign. You read that and you're like, well, I want to figure it out. Maybe it's in the Bible. And you start thinking about Gog and Magog. And if you don't know who that is, that's probably better for you, right? So you don't have to figure it out. God's in control. We don't know exactly how this is going to play out. Is this the end times? I, I don't know. But God's in control. He's always in control. He's sovereign over everything. And it's a good truth to share with your kids, and to remind yourself. And so as this theme is developed, hey, God's in control, God's sovereign. There's a couple points that seems to be making in this passage I think go along with that. And that first one is this, God will judge and punish the wicked. He will judge and punish the wicked, specifically his enemies. The people of God have enemies, and those are the enemies of God, and he will judge and he will punish them. That's what he's saying. I'm going I'm to wipe them out. However he wants to do it, he's going to do it. Whenever he wants to do it, he's going to do it. But he's going to do that. And the second point, God will defend his people. Look at verse 8 in Zechariah 9. After all this, 
Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. So Alexander went all the way down that coastline, defeated all those enemies, went into Egypt, turned around and came back and carried on the war with Persia a little bit further. He never went into Jerusalem. He didn't attack Jerusalem. It was right there. He went past it once, turned around, went past it again, never attacked Jerusalem. And there's probably a hundred different ways that historians would answer the question of why he didn't attack Jerusalem. And then there's one real big way right here. God predicted all this was going to happen. And after all the conquering, God says, I'm going to be the guard over my people in my house, and there will be no enemy coming in here. Because he's sovereign. And he defends his people. He judges and punishes the wicked, the enemies, and he defends his people. Now, this is where this gets really, really interesting and really, really helpful. Doesn't always feel like that, does it? Doesn't always feel like that the wicked are getting punished and getting judged. In fact, a lot of times, way too often, if you ask me, it seems like the wicked are getting away with it. There's a lot of times it doesn't feel like his people are being defended feels like we're being exposed to all kinds of suffering and pain and attacks and all kinds of stuff. And it doesn't always feel like in this moment that the wicked are getting punished and God is defending us. And when we don't understand, when we don't know exactly what's going on and it doesn't feel like it, then what do we do? We go back to this first truth that God's always in control. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher. His plans are We're not supposed to understand all of them. And in the middle of all that, he may be doing something that we don't know. I want God to destroy the wicked, the enemies, in my time when I want him to do it, how I want to see it done. And God's got a whole different timetable so much of the time. We want him to defend us at the right moment for us. And sometimes his defense comes at a completely different time in a different way, in a different method, all those things. In fact, the reality is that this prophet is talking about future and present and past and all this stuff is all mixed up. And so there's a lot of times when that God destroying and judging and punishing the wicked and him defending his people and protecting them, that's a futuristic end times for all eternity stuff and it's not going to happen here. And so when you don't understand... When it doesn't make sense, when you don't know what God's doing and why he's not punishing the wicked and why he's not defending you and why you're being hurt over and over again, like you run back to the truth and you cling to that truth. God's in control. I can trust him. He's working something for good. I can trust him no matter what it feels like. And then at the end of this whole section, leading into verse 9, you see that this conquering God is now going to send his king to his people, that God will send his king to his people. Verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So he's going to send his king. Now this is, once again, some of, this, some of these details are just really, really interesting. In verses 1 through 8, you see God saying, I will do this. Which is already interesting because he's going to use Alexander to do a lot of this. He says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the one that encamps at my house. I'm going to be the one who will cut off the pride of Philistia. I'm going to do this. I'm going to wipe out Tyre. And then in verse 9, it's almost like you've seen the 
conquering God, going through all the nations, and now he's going to come to Jerusalem, and you kind of expect God to come into Jerusalem, and he changes, and he starts talking about the king, and he starts using the word he. Changes the pronouns, and I know, boy, pronouns making a big comeback these days. <laughs> Let's don't go there. But these pronouns are specifically, like, it's, it's interesting. I'm going to do this, God says. Here's what I'm going to do in the end. I'm going to send my king. He's going to come in, and here's what he's going to do. And it's this picture in Zechariah of us pointing to Jesus, us pointing to the Messiah, right? And so this king that God is sending is obviously a person. It's obviously a human riding on a donkey, coming into the city. He's very closely associated with God, which is just the shadow the Old Testament gives us, that the God-man is coming as king. And so the king that God is sending us is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He's going to come into Jerusalem. He's going to come to rescue. He's going to come to save us. That's who is coming. And so God says, I'm going to do this, and I'm sending you the Messiah. And so what is this king like? What does he do? And verse 9 is the heart, and just kind of that's where we're going to focus. In verse 9 and 10, we're going to look at this coming king, this king that God is sending to Jerusalem to reign and rule over his people, and what his characteristics are, and what he's like, what he's going to accomplish. And the first thing you see right out of the gate, the coming king is righteous. This king that God is sending is righteous. Look at verse 9. Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous. He's coming to reign in righteousness. He's coming to establish a kingdom of righteousness. He's coming to be a just ruler, but it's way beyond that. He is righteous. He is righteousness. He's the personification of it. He's everything that we desperately needed. We needed a king to come who would be righteous. And here's why this is so important, because when we talk about the gospel, and we do this all the time, we talk about Jesus taking our place on that cross. That's a big part of it. It's a huge part of the gospel. We can't leave that out. Jesus in my place, the substitute. What does he do? He takes the punishment for my sin. He pays the penalty that I should have had to pay for my sin and my rebellion. He takes that on him, and Jesus dies taking that punishment in our place on that cross. Sometimes what we forget is that in exchange for our sin, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, he gives us in return his righteousness. That's what makes us right with God, is that Jesus gives us his perfection. Jesus gives us his obedience. He came and lived this perfect, sinless life. Why? Because he is a righteous king. It sets him apart from every other person and obviously every other king. He's righteous and he comes and does everything righteously. He doesn't abolish the law. He fulfills it. Why? Because we're lawbreakers and we needed somebody to fulfill it and live it out for us and then we needed somebody to give us that righteousness. Jesus takes the punishment that we should have taken. He pays the penalty for our sin and when we put our faith in him, he gives us his righteousness. And we, we don't be, we're not made right with God any other way. But he ushers us in. He gives us this righteousness. That word justification is one of the Bible words, one of the theology words about what Christ accomplished on the cross. Just as if we've never sinned is one of the ways that we understand that. But the other side is just as true. It's just as if we always obeyed. 
Jesus made us right with God by giving us his righteousness. Not because we did anything right, not because we did it right. We did it all wrong. And he gives us as a free gift his righteousness because of what he accomplished for us. And so this king that's coming, he is righteous. And this coming king brings salvation. He, he's coming to save us because we needed to be saved. We needed to be rescued. Back at verse 9, behold, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and having salvation is he. He brings salvation when he comes. He's, he's coming into the, to the city and he's bringing with him salvation. He's accomplishing our salvation and what he does. He brings it and he is like, he is salvation, but his salva- our salvation is going to be accomplished by the work that Jesus comes to do. That he's going to come to die on that cross in our place. He's going to be buried in a grave. And on the third day, he's going to come out of the grave alive forevermore to show that he is one. To show that he is the king of all kings. And when he does that, that work of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that work provides our salvation. When you put your faith and trust in him, that all of our sin has been taken with him to the cross. And he gives us his righteousness and he gives us salvation. He has come to save us. He's the king we desperately needed. He's not just any other king to reign and rule from a throne. He's the king of all kings that we needed. We needed righteousness that we couldn't attain, and we needed salvation that we had no hope of ever getting. So the king that is coming, this coming king is righteous, the coming king brings salvation, and this coming king is humble. Look at what it says here in verse 9. He's righteous, having salvation as he, and he's humble, and he's mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Kai was telling me that he thinks this might have something to do with what Jesus did when he showed up and rode in a town on a donkey. I don't know. Maybe so. Kai's very bold. <laughs> it's obviously pointing to that. It's so, so clear. That he comes in and and it's it's designed to catch us off guard. It's designed to be unexpected. I mean, what have we been watching? The conquering warrior God. He's conquering Damascus and he's conquering Tyre and he's conquering Sidon. He's conquering Philistia. He's conquering all these places. And so what do you expect him to do? Ride into Jerusalem as a conquering warrior king on a horse, a war horse. That's what you expect. And he comes in on a donkey. I don't know if you guys remember this, back in September in our study in Matthew, Kai walked us through this. The upside down kingdom was that sermon. You ought to go back and listen to it. It's so helpful, this whole idea, this whole mindset. But Kai was setting that up. Like you're expecting the war horse, and then you come in, and he's coming on a donkey. Now, I don't know if you remember this. Kai played the donkey sound on his phone and the microphone for us. That's just something Kai does. He, all, he always does that. So that's what he did. So I thought Kai and I were talking, like, this will, this will, there's a lot of kids in the service today. More kids than normal. We love kids around here. And so what everybody would have been expecting was the warrior king to come in on the war horse, and instead he came in on a donkey. So at the count of three, all the kids, I need a really, really good donkey sound so we know what this must have sounded like, okay? Get ready. Good donkey sound. One, two, three. Okay. Um, That was pretty good. Parents, maybe some of y'all got to get out the farm book. Um, So that was, yeah, that was okay. That was good. It's designed to catch us off guard. It's designed to be unexpected. Like, here's what you expect. No, 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 no. That's not what you get. 
And it's interesting. David rode in on a donkey once. Solomon rode in. God's kings sometimes did ride on donkeys. It wasn't unheard of, but it was still unexpected because God's kings are always going to lead with humility. God's kings are always going to be servants. And Jesus comes as the king of all kings. He's the perfect servant. So he comes with humility. He comes gentle. He comes riding on a donkey. Why? Because that's what we needed. It's such a beautiful picture of Jesus coming as the servant king for us. What does Jesus say? I didn't come here to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Uh, for many. As, as in his humility, he's coming to lay down his life, to do the work of our salvation on the cross. He has to come in in humility and be willing to suffer the shame of the cross. And he does so with joy because he is the great servant king. There's a theologian named Arthur Pink that talks about this idea of Jesus being the humble servant king because it's not just in this story. It's in every story. This is who Jesus was. This is how he led. This is how he came. I want you to see this quote because it's such a beautiful picture of it. He says, Notice it, the humility and the men selected by him to be his ambassadors. He chose not the wise, the learned, the great, the noble, but poor fishermen for the most part. Witness it, the humility, in the company that he kept. He sought not the rich and the renowned, but was the friend of publicans and sinners. See it, this humility, in the miracles he performed. Again and again, he enjoined the healed to go and tell no man what had been done to them. Behold it in the unobtrusiveness of his service. Unlike the hypocrites who sounded a trumpet before them, he sought not the limelight, shunned advertising, and disdained popularity. When he, when Jesus, in fulfillment of prophecy, presented himself to Israel as their king, he entered Jerusalem lowly and riding upon a donkey. This is the king that we serve. This is the king that we follow. This is the king who's invited us into his work of building his kingdom here on earth. And so, guys... Guess what that looks like? It looks like serving. It looks like laying your life down. It looks like putting others ahead of yourself. It looks like considering others' needs is more important. We follow a king who is the great servant leader, and so we are called to go into the world and to serve. We're not called to go in with weapons. He comes humble, gentle, lowly, riding on a donkey to proclaim who he is and what he's come to do. He's come to die for us. Because that was our only hope. This coming king, in all of his humility, also comes and proclaims peace. The coming king proclaims peace. Look at verse 10. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he, the king, shall speak peace to the nations. So God says, I'm going to cut off the chariot and the war horse, no need for that. Break the bow, cut that off, which doesn't mean he's eliminating all conflict. That's not, we're not talking about a timeline here. He's not taking all conflict out of the world. We know there's still conflict. What he means is my people are not going to rely on that kind of stuff anymore. They're going to rely on me. My people are going to rely on their weapons and their strength and their might. We've already heard this in Zechariah. They're going to trust in me, their defender. And he says, this king is coming, and he's going to proclaim peace. He's going to proclaim peace 
to the nations. All the nations are welcome in, invited in. We've already seen this theme throughout Zechariah, but he's proclaiming this peace. That's, that's why he comes on a donkey. He doesn't come in on a war horse because he didn't come in to conquer like they expected him to. That's why they reject him. They expected a conquering king to come in, defeat the Romans, defeat all their enemies. He comes in on a donkey because he came to bring peace. And you go, well, there's no peace. I don't know, where, where, where's the peace? I, when you understand that the first and foremost peace that he came to bring us is the peace between us and God. It's the peace that we desperately needed. It's interesting in this passage because it starts with God defeating all the enemies. God punishing the wicked, judging them. And it's really easy to skip by that, isn't it? It's like, oh yeah, can't wait till God gets all those wicked people. That was us. We were the enemies. We, we were God's enemies. Why? Because we sinned and rebelled against him. We said we didn't need him. We fired the first shot. We declared war against the holy God. The Bible says, Romans says, we were God's enemies because we turned our backs on him. And God's going to punish his enemies. But the king comes to offer peace. The king comes to present an option, a way to establish peace between us and God, even though we rebelled against him and we had become his enemies, the king comes to give us a chance at peace, the only chance that exists. And that's just absolutely amazing that, that in this peace that he's establishing, he's going to fight an unbelievable battle. He's going to conquer really our worst enemies, sin and death, and he's going to beat them. And in that fight, in that battle, he's going to give us peace. He's going to establish peace where there was no peace. It's such a beautiful picture of this king that's coming who's humble enough to die on a cross and proclaims peace to us. And I tell tell this story a lot, especially when I'm doing like youth camps. There's a long version of this I can tell you later, but there's a short version I wanted to share with you now. It happened when I was five years old. It's a story my dad has told so many times. It's, it's, it's like I remember it in detail. But I was five years old. My dad was the head basketball coach in Angleton, Texas, home of the Wildcats, purple and white, fight, fight, fight. And his friend was one of the football coaches, and we got together all the time. And the, the friend had a son named Kent who was a couple of years older than me. And every time we got together, Kent picked on me. He hurt me. He knocked me down. He made me cry every time. Like that's the way this always went. Kent would hurt me, I would cry, the parents would intervene, it's quite embarrassing. One day we're driving up to the house, you know, for another day of torture, and we stopped the car, my dad said, hey, Lance, listen to me, if you let, Kit, if you let him pick on you and hurt you and you cry and you don't hit him back today, I'm going to give you a whooping when you get home. Parenting was just real different back then. <laughs> and he said, I looked bewildered. Which you can imagine. He said, listen to me. Every time Kent picks on you and you just cry and then we have to come in there today, if he picks on you, you're going to hit him back. And if you don't, I'm going to give you a whooping and it'll be worse than anything he could do to you. I don't remember this exactly, but I bet you I was thinking, oh, great. I'm going to get whooped twice today. It's going to be fun. He said at that moment, he felt like he needed to coach me up. So he's like, listen, Lance, if Kent starts picking on you, if he starts doing anything, you just hit him in the nose. If you can hit him in the nose, you'll end it. It'll be over. I'm like, what? Is that a magic button? I don't, I mean, how long are you going to keep this information from me? And he coached me up on how to do that. And then we got out of the car and we walked up to the house and we walked in the door and Kent's dad and my dad were talking. I was just standing there and Kent wasn't there. And then they were just talking. All of a sudden Kent heard we were there and he ran out of the room. He ran up to me and I hit him right in the nose. (laughs) Man, I got him. I mean, he was coming in to say hi. 
boom. It was awesome. He fell down and started crying like a baby. This is the greatest thing ever. I was like, well, you want some more? Then the craziest thing happened because my dad started yelling at me. He's like, not now. Don't, don't hit him right now. And Kent's dad started yelling at him. What do you mean not now? Did you tell him to hit Kent? My dad was like, yeah, but not right now. <laughs> I, I, we never hung out with them again after that. Like, I think I ended the whole friendship. I don't care because I won. doesn't matter. My dad didn't care because he taught me a lesson that he thought was very important. And I'm so glad we have all these kids in here today. So you parents, good luck with that over lunch. <laughs> but my dad was teaching me how to be a Texan, how to be a man, how to be American. You don't let people pick on you. You don't let them get them. Somebody gets you, you get them back. You make it memorable. End it. Sweep the leg. Like that's what he was teaching me. And Zachariah's message here is screaming to us. That is not the way God does things. He has every right to punish us. He has every right to pour out his wrath and revenge on us. We are his enemies because we walked away from him. And he sends a king not to conquer, not to destroy. He sends a king to bring peace, to reconcile. To make us right with him. We had no chance of that on our own. The coming king brings peace. Such a beautiful picture and such a good reminder. That's what he's offered me. He doesn't seek revenge. He seeks a relationship. And this coming king, he reigns forever. (laughs) Forever. The end of verse 10 His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And then he starts talking about how he's going to equip his people for a spiritual battle and he's going to strengthen them for a completely different kind of battle to go in the world, be salt, light, all those things. And verse 16, on that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land for how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. This end picture of our God, this king of all kings, this servant king, this king who is righteous and brings salvation and gives us peace and is so humble, he reigns forever and ever. And we get to reign with him if we put our faith and trust in him because we've been made right because of what he's accomplished. So what what do we do with this? Well, the, the first thing is a warning, right? Don't reject him. The king is coming to give peace. He didn't have to. We didn't deserve it, but he came to bring peace, so don't reject him. When Jesus rode in, what did they do? They rejected him. The crowd that cheered him is now turning around and demanding that Pilate crucify him. Don't reject him. Don't miss him. If you've never put your faith and trust in him, there's no other hope for you. Put your faith and trust in him. Talk to somebody about that today. Don't reject him. The second thing, I think, is that we get to build his kingdom and we get to follow a king who serves. And so go into the world and serve. Lay your life down. Sacrifice. Be willing to put others first because of the king that we worship and follow. But in this passage, what you see the most is that our response should be to rejoice. Verse 9, the key verse. What does he say? Your king's coming, so rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout Aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
Because your king is coming and he will reign forever. And he's the king you desperately needed. He's the king I desperately needed. So rejoice. Rejoice with shouting. Rejoice with worship. Rejoice with all of our lives poured out for him. He's the only one worthy of that kind of devotion. So rejoice. 500 years after Zechariah said this, Jesus rode into town on a donkey. Luke 19, verse 37 says, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Rejoice. Worship him for who he is and what he's done. Let's pray. God, thank you for your truth It's in your word. It is always, always helpful. It's, it's timely when we couldn't even plan it. You're so good to us. And thank you for this picture of the king that we desperately needed. The one who's worthy of our devotion, our affection, our lives. Because he's provided salvation because of his righteousness. And God, I pray that you will help us to respond to him today and respond with worship to the truth of who he is and what he's accomplished. In the powerful name of Jesus and for his glory, we pray it. Amen.